Well, thank you, Hanshen, for leading the service. And thanks to Ruth and the music team and the tech team behind was working so hard to serve us in this way. Now, the best way to follow uh, the sermon is really to have your Bibles open and I encourage you to download the outline that you can find on our website. Now, one of the most welcome news for many people is the vaccinated travel lanes. Now, even as I'm speaking now, there are many already on their way out to Germany, the US, and soon Malaysia. For some, it is a chance right, to go holiday, to go on a holiday overseas. For others, it can even be more personal. As I read the news, and I know some personally, many have come to Singapore or went overseas for work. They had to be separated from their families and, and, uh, for almost two years now. They leave their family to earn a better living and to provide for them. Due to the closing of um, the borders because of COVID-19, they are unable to go back home to meet their family. The separation is very painful indeed. No doubt it is mitigated by the use of video calls, but it is no real substitute for meeting family face to face, spending time and doing things together. During my sabbatical in 2019, I attended an almost month-long course in Israel. Due to the timing and the rigor of the course, the family can't be with me. It was a wonderful trip. It was in the promised land, so to speak, learning a bit about archaeology, the geographical and historical setting of the Bible. I got to experience the different cultures and met many new friends all over the world. Yet every day, I was missing my family, even though it was only for a few weeks. I text regularly and I video call home about twice a day. But I still miss seeing them in person. And they miss me too. Well, I hope so. They will wait for my call after school or before bed. So no matter how tired we were, especially with the time difference, we would talk over the phone. Still nothing beats being in the presence of each other. You know, in the book of Exodus, one of the greatest privileges of the nation of Israel is the presence of God with them. God has saved them from Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai. It was at Mount Sinai that God gave them His law and made a covenant with them. As part of the covenant, God will dwell among His people in the tabernacle. He will move with them within the camp as they make their way to the promised land. See, just as everything was falling in place, Israel committed a grave sin. They made and worshipped the golden calf, breaking the commandments as a result. The covenant was broken, and God in His holiness was all ready to destroy them and restart with Moses. With the successful mediation and intercession of Moses, God spared them a total annihilation after a limited judgment on the people. The big question that now looms is how can God dwell with His people after they sin? After their grave sin of idolatry, 
will God, will God cut himself off from the Israelites? How can God dwell with his people after they sin? Now, the straight answer to that question is that he cannot. The holy God cannot dwell with sinful people. And we see that in Exodus chapter 33, verse 1 to 6. The Lord told Moses to depart from Mount Sinai with the people whom Moses brought up out of Egypt. You can already sense the distancing from God. They were no longer His people whom He has brought out of Egypt. They were Moses's. But God was still faithful in fulfilling His promises. He told them to go to the land that He has promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, to give to their descendants. Despite the sin of the Israelites, God would help them get the land that is flowing with milk and honey. He would send an angel before them to help them drive out the inhabitants of Canaan. Does that sound like the worst is over? God is happy now? Is God honky-dory with all of them now? I'm afraid not. You know, it's like the situation after spouses fought or, or, or between a parent and a child. They may exchange a few words, you know, uh, to communicate functionally after that. Like, eat your dinner, go to bed. But nothing is really resolved between them. The relationship is still not right. And that is so between God and the Israelites in verse 3. God may send an angel before them. However, he himself will not go up among them. He will not dwell with the Israelites as they go to the land. Now, there lies a paradox for us as the readers. We are often told that the presence of God is mediated through the angel. That was how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and Moses met God. However, there seems to be a distinction here. An angel may go with them, but God himself will not. For well, he is present in the sense of guiding them, yet absent in another sense by not going with the people. So the key words here to understand this is the words, among you. According to Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, the tabernacle was supposed to represent God in the midst of his people. Due to the golden calf incident, the covenant is broken. There will be no more tabernacle in the midst of the people. God is not going to dwell with them anymore. And as Philip Reichen pointed out, they tried to have God near to them through the golden calf. But they only succeeded in pushing God further away with their sin. Isn't that a great irony? In fact, verse 3 tells us that they may be consumed if God is among them. It is another way of saying that God would destroy them in judgment if they sin against along the way to Canaan. That is God's natural and right response to sin in His perfect holiness. You know, the award-winning movie, The Blind Side, is based on the true story of Michael Oher 
Michael Owa is a former American football offensive tackle. Now, that's uh, American football for you, even though they don't kick you know, the ball that much. See, by becoming a football player, before he became a football player, Michael was a black teenager who had nowhere to live till he was picked up and later adopted by a white family. In one of the scenes in the movie, Michael was driving his new truck with the young son of this adopted family sitting in the front seat. He was probably too young to sit there. They got into an accident, but thankfully, they weren't seriously hurt. Now, the main reason is because Michael instinctively pushed away the airbag that was deployed upon impact. Now, that prevented the full force of the airbag hitting his younger brother. Michael was later tested to be 90 over percent in defensive instinct. It is part of his instinctive nature to defend someone else. But for God, he is 100% in holiness instinct. He's perfect in holiness and righteousness. His natural instinct in the face of sin is to judge and rightly punish sinners. Hence, he does not want to go with the sinful Israelites. The Israelites are stiff-necked in the sense that they are stubborn, stubborn in not following God's ways. They were seen on their way to Canaan and they were raised, God consuming and destroying them. See, God refusing his presence with the Israelites is actually an act of mercy and grace. God is practicing safe distancing from the Israelites lest they get destroyed. However, God's refusal of presence is a disaster for Israel. And the people knew it. When they heard these disastrous or distressing words from the Lord, they mourn. Yes, they will receive the blessing of the land, but they know that the ultimate blessing is having God with them. See, the ultimate blessing is to have what God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. See, without God with them, it will be like having a big and beautiful house, but having none of your loved ones with you. So they immediately took off their ornaments, which is jewellery in general. It's a symbolic act of repentance, of grief and mourning. Nobody doors up if they are truly in grief. However, putting off the ornaments is perhaps more significant in this, it's more significant in this context. See, they previously used their gold rings to make the golden calf. Putting them off now is a clear sign that they are sorry for all that they have done and they are putting away, it away in repentance. You see, my friends, it's a good lesson for us in repentance, isn't it? See, we can't just say sorry for our wrongdoing without taking any steps to change. What is causing us to sin, we need to get rid of it as soon as possible and as far as possible. See, Jesus said it even more radically when he says that we must cut off the hand 
and the eye that causes us to sin. Now, he's not saying that literally, but he's saying that true repentance needs drastic and immediate turnaround action. Now, what might be that for you? Is it your phone, your private time on your computer, your indulgence in games and porn, your discontentment in your grades, school and work? True repentance, my friends, needs a drastic and immediate turn away and getting rid of whatever is causing you to sin. However, in the case of the Israelites, nothing is really resolved, even with their repentance alone. See the phrase in uh, verse 5, that I might know what to do with you, or as NIV puts it, I will decide what to do with you, tells us that that sin is not dealt with, even with their mourning. Sin remains a barrier between a holy God and a sinful people. Hence, there is still no reconciliation between God and the Israelites at this point. How can God dwell with his people after they sin? He cannot, because he is holy, while his people are sinful. But that didn't stop Moses from trying to plead their case. In the next section, or the next point in the sermon, we see Moses making three requests in hope of having God dwell with his people again. And we will also see the importance of the mediator in having God dwell with his people. See, verse 7 tells us that Moses went to the tent of meeting that is pitched outside the camp. There was no mention of this tent prior to this. The name tent of meeting is often used to refer to the tabernacle. However, it's clearly not the tabernacle here because it, has not, it was not uh, erected yet. Furthermore, in contrast to the tabernacle, which was supposed to be inside the camp, this tent was outside the camp. But this shows that God has yet to dwell with his people. See, while Moses met with God there, the rest of the people had no access. They had to be far away from the tent. However, the meeting between God and Moses after their great sin offered hope. Even if God was not going to be with his people now, he was at least talking to Moses. In meeting God, Moses firstly asked God to tell him who God will send with him. Now, it's a strange question, isn't it? Didn't God already say that he's sending an angel to guide them? I think Moses was probably asking God who was personally going to be with him. See, Moses is going to start on this new journey, this new phase of going into the promised land. Who was God going to send to strengthen him and to guide him personally if God himself was not to go? In fact, I think it is perhaps Moses' way of pleading for God to go with him as we will see in God's reply in verse 14. He was asking for God to give him the assurance that he would personally be with him just like how he did when he first sent Moses back to Egypt. On what basis did Moses make this bold request? 
But the end of verse 12 tells us that Moses pleaded based on what God has said to him. I know you by name and you have found favour in my sight. Now this statement by God to Moses is not recorded in the Bible previously. and It's now reviewed for the first time. And it will be repeated five times in God's conversation with Moses. See, to know someone by name Right? It's a way of saying that they are in a close and personal relationship. And to have found favour is to say that the person was shown grace by the other. In other words, Moses was pleading and making this request on the basis of their personal relationship and God's unmerited favour on him. He was pleading boldly but humbly for Israel. Yet in his request, we see Moses' intentions and his heart. As Moses asked for God to go with him, he was asking God to be with his people. See, God reminded, uh, Moses reminded God at the end of verse 13 that this nation is your people. They, was not just, they were not just some random group of people. They were those whom God had heard the cries of, who has loved them, who has saved from Egypt with his mighty hand. Moses is saying to God that they were not just the people, but your people. You have given your promise to them and they have a unique role and a unique relationship with you. And how did God answer Moses' request? Verse 14 tells us that God agreed and promised his presence. He would go and give Moses rest. Once again, it sounds good, right? God is acceding to Moses' request to go with him personally. However, there is a veiled kind of rejection at the same time. The you in verse 14 is actually singular. Of course, it may refer to Israel as a collective singular. However, I think that the you here refers to Moses only. God is going with Moses, but not the Israelites. Now, if you remember in Exodus chapter 32, verse 10, God was keen to start afresh with Moses. So God was willing to be with Moses, but not with the Israelites at this point. So I interpreted the singular you to mean Moses because this answer from God prompted the second request by Moses. The second request is a request for God not to send them off if he was not going to go with the people. Now, well, in the more of the modern translation, the word with me in verse 15, or with us even in NIV, is not there in the Hebrew. The phrase is simply, if your presence will not go, do not bring us up from here. In other words, Moses is saying that if God was not going to go, then do not bring us, the nation, from Mount Sinai to Canaan. And then Moses repeated, I and your people, twice, in verses 16 and 17, to emphasize that God cannot just go with him alone. Moses and God's people must be included as one. One for all and all for one. Sounds like the army, right? If one suffers, all will suffer. If God wasn't going to go with the Israelites, Moses wouldn't be going too. 
And see how clever Moses was? He called the Israelites, your people. They were not the people which God had called them, or Moses' people, but God's people. Now, this is not a blackmail from Moses. It's not some emotional blackmail to force God to do his bidding. The reason Moses made this bold request is found in verse 16. The very reason why the nation of Israel is distinct is because of the presence of God among them. You see, without God with them, they are no different from the rest of the nations in the world. Now, as you know, ARPC has organized Let's Carnival for a few times uh, before we were hit with COVID-19 and we can't have it anymore, at least not for now. Now, one of the main draws of Let's Carnival is that it is part of the President's Challenge. And the President has graced us by attending Let's Carnival in person each time. And the draw of the President was clearly strong as crowds always gather around the President every time. See, without the President... That's carnival. Well, it'll still be big. It'll still be fun. However, you may not be very different from other carnivals. The presence of the president makes a huge difference. What more of God? You see, without God, Israel is perhaps well, a powerful nation that can conquer Canaan, drive out all its inhabitants but it remains only a strong nation. However, God has saved them to be distinct. You see, if you go back and look at chapter 19, verse 4 to 5, we will remember that God saved them to be His treasured possession. They are to be His royal priesthood and holy nation. Their role is to point all other nations to Him. Nations are to see how wonderful how different it is to have God with them and to live according to His ways. So the subtle message Moses was sending is that Israel can't fulfill that task or that mission if God was not going to be with them. They would not be distinct without God. The rest of the nations would not be drawn to the goodness of being with God and will not be blessed as a result. God's plan to make himself known will be frustrated. So his glory is at stake here. Now Moses' pleading and intercession for Israel worked. God acceded to Moses' request in verse 17. He would do what Moses asked of him. He would go with his people. Moses has once again used God's favour on him and their personal relationship to intercede and mediate between God and Israel. He has previously succeeded in interceding with God to spare the Israelites in chapter 32. Now he's again successful in pleading for God to go in the midst of his people. The favour that was given to Moses will now be extended to the Israelites because of Moses' mediation. How can God dwell with his people after they sin? The people needed a mediator who will plead and intercede for them. But Moses wasn't done yet. He made a third request in verse 18. 
please show me your glory. Moses was asking for God to reveal more of himself despite already closely relating with him. However, God cannot reveal all of himself to Moses. And why so? God told Moses in verse 20 that no man can see God and live. There's no doubt the problem of sin. No matter how righteous Moses was or how favoured he was, he is still a sinner. If he was to see God face to face in his fullness, he will die. So Moses has to you know, hide in a cleft in the rock while God's glory passes him. And even then, God needs to cover Moses metaphorically with his hand. And after which, God will show him or let him see a glimpse of his back. See, but what Moses will see wasn't as important as what he will hear. See, we'll, we'll see later that the focus is what God proclaims about himself and not about what Moses has seen. Or you may ask, why did Moses ask to see God's glory? Hasn't God you know, already agreed to all his requests? Now, Moses may possibly be asking for a double confirmation because of God's refusal to go with his people earlier. But I think the scholar Christopher Wright is, is right here in his view that Moses was perhaps thinking how can God go with them despite them being stiff-necked? See, God has said earlier that he will destroy or consume them if he continues to be in their midst. And now that God has agreed to go with them, God, then Moses may be asking for some kind of confirmation that the Israelites can survive. So in asking God to show his glory, Moses knew that their survival is based on God's character. And God's character is His glory and is described as His goodness. This goodness is further described as His mercy and graciousness. In the freedom of His sovereignty, God will lean in favour of His mercy and grace when He dwells with His sinful people. He will not destroy them despite that stubbornness. Once again, God acceded to Moses' request and revealed himself in chapter 34, verse 6 to 7. What God revealed in these two verses is very significant because it will be quoted again and again in other parts of the Bible and each time it will be about God showing his grace and his mercy to his sinful people. So what did God reveal about himself? He is firstly merciful, which means he is sympathetic of our weakness. He is compassionate to help us. He is secondly gracious in giving his undeserved favour to us. See, being merciful and gracious are attributes which God has already shown in saving Israel of Egypt. He is now rekindling those attributes in the aftermath of Israel's unfaithfulness and sin. Thirdly, God is slow to anger. It's often understood as patience and long-suffering. Now what that means is that God is not volatile. He does not lose his temper. 
He's patiently enduring the unfaithfulness of His people, waiting for them to repent. And we see this attribute in how He has dealt with Adam, with Abraham, with Jacob, and all the more now with this group of stiff-necked people. Fourthly, God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, the Hebrew word for steadfast love is hesed. It refers to the commitment that God has made in His covenant to love His people and to be their God. It's also closely connected to the attribute of faithfulness, which again refers to His faithfulness and commitment to His promises. And these attributes leads to God's action of firstly keeping His love for thousands of generations. His love endures forever. And secondly, God will be forgiving of their iniquity, their transgression, and sin. Now, these are all three terms to describe sin comprehensively. Together, they refer to all the wickedness, all the rebellion, and the moral failure of people. Yet, God is going to forgive His people, forgive all of this in His mercy, in His grace and love. He is literally going to carry the heavy burden of sin and to take it away from his people. However, that does not mean that God will tolerate sin or he will sweep it under the carpet. See, the end of verse 7 tells us that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Nonetheless, this is set as a contrast of how God's steadfast love for thousands of generations compared to judgment for three to four generations. His steadfast love is far greater and more long-lasting. And verse 8 tells us that the immediate response of Moses to God's revelation of himself, of his glory, is to bow his head to the ground and worship. Now this is the rightful response to who God is. And furthermore, with this revelation of God's glory and goodness, Moses is assured that Israel will survive. That is how the sinful nation of Israel can have God dwelling with them. God can dwell among His sinful people without destroying them because of His character. His abundant mercy, grace, love and faithfulness will keep his covenant, will make him keep his covenant and be committed to love and forgive their sins. His response, or Moses' response, is rightly then to worship this merciful and gracious God. How can God dwell with his people after they sin? Firstly, the people needed a mediator who will plead and intercede on their behalf. But secondly, and more importantly, they needed God to be merciful, gracious, loving, and forgiving. However, there is still one more step. The covenant must be remade. See, from chapter 34 onwards, we'll see the willingness of God to remake this covenant. It is a good sign because that means that God is willing to be in relationship with people after all the terrible things they have done. However, the covenant also means that the Israelites, they must act and live according to God's laws 
and stipulations. That is the rightful response and commitment to God for His mercy and grace. And if they truly can live according to His ways, they will indeed be distinct and to show how good it is to live under God and under His ways. Hence, the Ten Commandments will be written again. The two new tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments signify that the covenant is made. And similar to Exodus 21 to 23, God then spelled out a list of instructions and laws for the Israelites to follow. However, you will see that it's not the same content. There were no instructions on how they should relate to one another or relate to animals. Perhaps the previous instructions were assumed, but the emphasis here and how is on how Israel can avoid idolatry when they enter the land. They were also to keep the appointed feast and the Sabbath which God has stipulated to remind them of the love and the saving grace of God. Now, these instructions were emphasized because they went directly against what they have done in the golden calf incident. They made their own idol and they had their own idolatrous feast. So in the remaking of their covenant, God was making it clear to them again that such idolatry, such sin must not happen again. This was what the Israelites had to obey and comply. While God is merciful and gracious in forgiving them of their sins, Israel must respond in commitment to worship God alone. They are not to re-offend with their idolatry again. Yet we know, yet we know that Israel will fail again and again. We have the benefit of hindsight to know that Israel is truly stiff-necked. They were stiff-necked on their way to Canaan and they will be stiff-necked in Canaan. The covenant was broken many times over and God in His holiness has to do the inevitable task of sending them into exile. But nevertheless, we see the same merciful and gracious God at work. He promised a new covenant in Jeremiah 31. A new covenant which God will put His law within His people and He will write it on their hearts and He will be their God again and they shall be His people and they shall all know Him for He will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Now how would that be possible with stiff-necked and sinful people? It's possible because God will provide a better mediator than Moses. That is Jesus, whom God has said, This is my Son, whom I am well pleased. He's even more highly favoured than Moses, for he is the Son, and he has never sinned. And Jesus didn't even, he's not going to just see a glimpse of God's glory. He is God himself. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. By Jesus' life, and especially on the cross, He reveals God's glory. He is the merciful, gracious God who died on the cross for the sins of His people, bringing forgiveness of their sins once for all. 
And by his death, Romans 3 tells us that he satisfied the righteousness of God. God's holiness and justice are not compromised as he took on the penalty of our sins. So the final question on how God can dwell with his people after they sin is always Jesus. It's never based on how good we are, for we will never be. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The only reason why God can dwell with his people is because Jesus has removed the barrier of sin with his death and his resurrection. So what might, what might that mean for us? Well, firstly, it means that God's mercy is always more. Some of us might be broken and discouraged by our past and our present sin. It may even be how low you feel about yourself because you know, of your performance at home, in school or at work. You never thought that you are ever good enough. You may even try to make up for it by trying to be more obedient or serve more. But my friends, hear God's word today. Our salvation, our forgiveness and acceptance by the Lord is not based on our merits, but solely on God's delight in His Son and in His work on the cross. But secondly, the same principle applies to those who think too highly of themselves. See, with our Singaporean culture, we may feel very confident of ourselves before God because of our standing in society, our accomplishment, and even our Bible knowledge. See, the irony is the same with the Israelites. We may mistakenly think that those idols in our lives make us closer to God. But in reality, they push God further away from us because the only means to a right relationship with God as sinners is through the merciful and gracious mediator, Jesus Christ. And lastly, the mercy and grace of God must result in repentance and total worship of God. That was the right response of the Israelites and of Moses. And so it must be for us as well. See, God saved us from sin to worship Him and to live in His ways. We must no longer be stiff-necked people. And the good news is that we are in a much better position than the Israelites, for we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. The death and the resurrection of Jesus allows the Holy Spirit not to just dwell in the camp, but to dwell in us. He's able to help us say no to sin. Back to my story in the beginning. After my month-long trip to Israel, I flew back to Singapore. And at the airport, my family was delighted to see me again. And so was I. See, we exchanged big and long hugs. Nothing beats seeing each other face to face. While my family was temporarily separated by time and space, God and us can be eternally separated by sin. But thanks be to God. Jesus made it possible for God to dwell with us and in us 
by removing sin by his death. And one day when sin is totally dealt with, we will be in his presence forever and ever. So may we remember his goodness and to come to him boldly and humbly because his grace and his mercy is more. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do not presume that we can come to you on our own merits, for they are but filthy rags before you. Without your mercy and grace, what awaits us is eternal condemnation and separation from you. So we thank you, dear Father, that in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we are forgiven once and for all. May you now enable us always to humble ourselves before you and live a life of total worship to you. And strengthen us by your Spirit to live according to your ways so that the world may know the glory of your name, the holy, merciful and gracious God whose steadfast love endures forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.